You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. The Fed's next move. The latest Fed decision is less than an hour away now. What to expect after the surprisingly strong jobs report? And with markets starting to act a little frothy, we'll have the very latest. And NEC Director Larry Kudlow joins us. Will the White House push for another stimulus package even as the economy starts to recover? Plus, Starbucks selling off today as it announces a dramatic shift to its business model and Tesla crosses above $1,000 a share. $186 billion market cap, Dom. That's what we're talking about for Tesla. It's Crazy. stunning just to think about how it compares to other traditional automakers out there, Kel, but certainly one of those names that's catching a lot of attention these days. And in a mixed market, it's the NASDAQ-type stocks that are leading the way higher. You can see here mixed market, but green, half a percent of the upside for the NASDAQ composite. Another record high, again, above that 10,000 mark, a new record level. The S&P 500 off about one quarter of one percent. The Dow Industrials about a half of one percent as well. Now, let's just take a look at in context what's been the leadership in the markets. The Nasdaq has been and remains the big leadership. Remember, we talked about a V-shaped recovery. It's not totally symmetrical, but still, that's a pretty big V. Remember, the Nasdaq composite lost about 33 percent of its value through the COVID-19 crisis as it's now gained about 50 percent since those levels. So we're going to watch that. And by the way, just for some context, the folks over at Y Charts took a look at just the stocks that powered the gains between NASDAQ 9000 and NASDAQ 10,000. Take a look at these five stocks, because overall, Apple has put up about 71 points of the 1,000-point gain. Amazon, 49 points on its own. Facebook, you can see, 47 points on its own. 43 for Alphabet, and then around 41 for Microsoft. You total all of those up. It's roughly about 250 points. I think it's 251. So 25% of the 1,000-point gain in the NASDAQ between 9 and 10,000. Kelly, wow. just those five stocks alone. I'll send things back yeah, over Yeah, it's Fang with Microsoft in for Netflix. Dom, thanks so much, and we'll see you a little bit later. The Fed's decision on interest rates is due at the top of the hour, and investors are eager to hear how much the Fed will continue to support the economy and for how long. Steve Leesman is here with more on both counts. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly, an interesting meeting coming up that does present some risks to the market, principally because there's really no consensus on what the Fed might do. I have uh, some economists saying the Fed will definitely do this, another guy saying they'll never do that. Uh, and so we go in with a little bit uncertainty about uh, what the Fed will do and what the market expects the Fed to do. Here are some areas that I'll be looking closely at. Uh, obviously, guidance on rates. There's talk about stronger forward guidance for how long rates will be low. Uh, how does Chairman Powell react to, and the Fed for that matter, react to the better than expected jobs report on Friday? Does it cause them to ease back on some of the plans for further relief and how much more it will do beyond what's already been promised? And that is considerable. Finally, a return of the dots, the forecast from the Federal Reserve that took a break in the middle of the crisis in March. All right, let's take these one by one. What more will the Fed do? Our CNBC Fed survey showed support for three principal areas, data-based forward guidance. That is, pick an econ stat, probably inflation, maybe unemployment, and keep rates low until a certain metric has been hit there. A quantitative easing, the Fed hasn't really done a QE program, not a classic one to this point. It's done more for market functioning. Uh, purchases that it's done. And bond yields cap, setting a rate uh, uh, for the Treasury market and buying and selling bonds to hit that rate. Okay, so the outlook comes back. Take a look at the yellow bars in this next chart. That's the last time we heard from the Fed back in December. They were looking for 2% growth this year, 
3.5% unemployment and a 1.6% Fed funds rate. Things have decidedly changed, and we'll see how close to those next numbers. That's the CNBC Fed survey, a 5% GDP decline, a 9.5% year-end unemployment rate, and a 0.11 funds rate for the end of the year. We'll see how close it goes. But, Kelly, a question as to whether or not the Fed surprises on the upside by announcing some new forward guidance or some new programs or keeps the status quo, says, look, we've done a lot and there's lots more to do, and it looks like the economy is improving. You know, what's going on in the stock market, Steve, I wonder if that's going to be somewhat the talk of the Fed meeting. Yesterday when we talked about the idea of them capping bond yields or doing yield curve control, our guest said the reason is because they don't want to have to kind of like send stock prices flying as they continue to stimulate the economy. So this would be maybe a, a different kind of measure. Um, I guess my question is, how much do you think they're watching some of the the retail behavior in the stock market and thinking to themselves, you know, we don't want to repeat the dot-com bubble all over again? I think they're watching it. I think there's concern. I think there's always concern about that. I, I don't know, Kelly, they have the luxury of having of addressing that issue right now. I think that Chairman Powell has said straight forth, getting the economy back to its maximum potential employment is the number one goal of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and there's going to be some uh, fallout from that. And that could be a, uh, um, the, a bubble in stocks. And, and there have been some uh, issues and equities that we've looked at that are just head scratching in terms of what's happened to them. Uh, but if the Fed were to withdraw that liquidity from the market uh, because of that reason, it could risk uh, a longer downturn. And, and it will be mm -hmm. meeting, as you know, for the first time since the economy was declared to be in recession. Right. Exactly. No, it's it's tricky. That's for sure. We're trying to make, you know, very kind difficult of balance all of this. Steve, thanks very much. We'll see you again soon. Steve Leisman Pleasure. with the preview there. For more on the Fed's next move, I'm joined by Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, Steve Whiting, the global chief investment strategist at City Private Bank, and Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy at Society General. It's great to have you all here. And Julia, I'll begin with you because Steve laid out three options the Fed could do. They could say, you know, they could set a target for when they'd raise rates. Um, I'm curious what you think that target would be. They could do more QE. They could cap bond yields. Which of those do you think is the best, uh, most attractive option? I think none of the above. I don't think <laughs> the Fed is ready to formalize their uh, monetary policy. They have been pretty clear that they're waiting for more clarity on the outlook before making those sorts of decisions. So I think they're going to be talking about them. Um, but I think the message that we're going to get today is very much the message that we've gotten in the last couple of months, which is by any means necessary. The Fed is, I don't think, taking much comfort from uh, as much comfort from the leveling out in data as the markets have. I think they're still very concerned about a second wave, which is already beginning in states that have started to open up. So I don't think the Fed thinks we're out of the, the woods yet. I think what we're going to get from the Fed in terms of forward guidance is through their summary of economic projections. I think what it's going to show is a substantial decline in GDP for 2020 and a double-digit employment rate at the end of the year, uh, still despite the Friday report, and um, also despite above-trend growth in the next two years, I think we're still going to have an unemployment rate at the end of 2022 that is well above the natural rate, and therefore we're going to get a median dot yeah. on and yeah. that's the down payment on forward guidance well, uh, that's 
will give us today. Exactly. So, Steve, bringing you into this, you know, none of this is predicated on, hey, the jobs w- report surprise to the upside. The markets are basically at all time highs and the Fed's going to step back. It's it's more about how do they support this uh, economy through what, the period that Julia described without creating the wrong kind of dislocations. So it's pretty clear that investor needs, investor desires, especially those that wanted to pick up distressed assets, uh, that wanted the Federal Reserve to stand aside uh, and allow things to crash, that those are far behind what the Fed's ultimate goals are here. And that is restoring the economy to full potential, like you just heard. Um, It's going to be difficult because the Federal Reserve can't operate very easily uh, in the particular corners of the economy that are impacted by COVID. Now, again, I think we're going to see a very strong snapback in the economy. It has already happened. Uh, we didn't lose 21 million jobs uh, in the month of April because of the virus. We, we lost them because of the shutdown. And we can get a lot back from that. But uh, Chairman Powell has to be very clear here that whatever the consequences in financial markets and the risks investors may want to take, their job here is to support restoring the economy to full potential, mm-hmm. get unemployment rate down over the next few years. And so probably forward guidance, some element of that, whether that's through dots or through communication, uh, again, is what would be more likely to happen. Yeah, Subhadra, it would make sense to me if they said we're not going to raise rates until the unemployment rate's below 3.5%, for instance. And that might not have the same uh, consequences as capping bond yields or doing more QE, especially for financial markets. But I want to ask you, before we kind of get into all of that, Subhadra, what you think the expectations are for their announcement at 2 p.m., what we might hear that could upset the markets? So I think I'm in agreement with Julia. I don't think we get any of the specifics that we're looking for on asset purchases, how much and for how long. Um, I I think it's a little too early for forward guidance, and it's definitely too premature for anything like yield curve control. So to me, what I'd be really surprised is if the Fed actually gives us specifics on all of these topics, or at least sets the um, the road for uh, forward guidance, as well as um, you know, give us a little bit more uh, clarity on what they're thinking on uh, monetary policy going forward. I think, for the most part, this is going to be a status quo meeting because, from my perspective, I think the Fed is very focused on the Fed facilities. I mean, this week they introduced the Main Street uh, lending program, allowing more small and medium bus- medium-sized businesses to. Uh, uh, to uh, participate. They're also focused on the municipal liquidity facility. So that's really where their focus is on right now. I think it's too early to make any drastic changes in monetary policy. Yeah. Steve, same question to you. What What are the kind of code words or discussion points that would upset the markets here? Well, I think clearly expressing any sort of overconfidence you know, you want the Federal Reserve chairman, ultimately, in the press conference, to be the most worried person in the world, yet again acknowledge uh, that a good deal of what has happened here can be reversed, but that the Federal Reserve is to there to ensure that we will have financial support, right, that the financial system, that uh, financial conditions will not be standing in the way of recovery. I also just say on yield curve control that, again, uh, if you wanted to ensure that we have low Treasury yields, the Federal Reserve, if it fails, uh, again, will achieve low Treasury yields. And this is probably exactly. a very sort of policy that what, they, what you just heard again about 
uh, specifically uh, policy effectiveness for small businesses, uh, why we have seen so few companies uh, you know, register and, and make it clear that they were that, that they want the Federal Reserve to be a buyer. These sorts of stigma issues. They could perhaps work uh, a little bit on this. Chairman Powell, uh, in these times, we have a history of him occasionally uh, upsetting markets uh, in his press conference. And the message here again should be: things can go well, but we're going to make sure that they go well. Yeah. <laughs> a threat almost. Uh, Julia, I'll, I'll end with you and this uh, concept, which Steve pointed out the other day that. The typical expectation for the Fed's balance sheet, which is already at seven trillion dollars, I believe, is that it goes to 10 trillion. I mean, we've never this makes 0809 look like peanuts. Yes, yes, it does. And I mean, so does the labor market for that matter. Uh, the shock is big. It's global uh, and it's not going to be easily resolved. So, yes, shutdowns help. But we still have this, you know, virus hanging over our economy and changing the structure of what we do and how we do it. So um, this is not child's play and the Fed is not uh, going to mess around. So I, I, I agree with Steve that um, the message is going to still be we're going to do whatever it takes. And that includes lots of balance sheet expansion through both QE and these credit programs that Subhadra mentioned. They're, they're very focused on that margin of policy, which is quite powerful. And I think that's what we're seeing in the markets. The markets, the Fed has successfully disconnected the shock from transmitting through the markets into a financial crisis. And, and that's, that's good news. I don't think the Fed is going to uh, worry about that at all. In fact, I think, I think they see that as success. Yeah, for sure. Thank you all today. Uh, we appreciate it with some guidance before we get this big decision top of the hour. Julia Coronado, Steve Whiting and Subhadra Rajapa. We'll take a quick break here. Coming up, the odds of a phase four stimulus are, quote, very, very high. That's the message from the White House this week. But what would it look like and is it necessary? We'll ask NEC director Larry Kudlow in a first on CNBC interview next. Also, Starbucks shares are falling as the company announces big strategic shifts down almost 5 percent this afternoon. We'll have the full details ahead right here on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. The talk of more stimulus coming from Washington keeps getting louder. In fact, the words used yesterday by economic advisor Kevin Hassett were that the odds of a phase four deal are, quote, very, very high, and it could actually happen pretty soon. What would the deal include, and does it have bipartisan support? Joining me now is Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council. Larry, welcome. It's good to see you. Hey, Kelly. Appreciate it. What's going to be in, in phase four? And you know, one of the most interesting things that people are realizing is that the PPP program has really helped this economy recover. But a lot of businesses are saying, you know, we're worried about the other side of this. Would you guys consider letting uh, small businesses go back to PPP if they need more funds? Well, I don't want to rule anything in or out. I'm not going to negotiate here. Uh, the PPP is kind of the loan demand seems to have peaked at about $500 billion dollars. And I think that was an enormous help, as you suggested. I mean, really, the PPP, I think, led directly to the surprising, wonderful jobs number we had last Friday, where more or less three million people who were temporarily laid off or furloughed went back into work in the labor force and went down to 15 million. And that was the whole story. And that's a PPP story. And I just want to say, I want to brag on some of my friends, the Congressional Budget Office 
nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Uh, their director, uh, Mr. Swagel, he said the Trump team should get a lot of credit for the fast delivery of the coronavirus stimulus. He particularly singled out the Treasury Department's delivery of the PPP and the SBA's delivery of the PPP. In a short period of time, you know, we got out in round numbers about 175 million checks. The assistance number is probably approaching $2 trillion. This is the liquidity cushion that we hoped would work. We got it done. I don't know that we're going to repeat it, but I'm just saying it worked. And now, with the reopenings, Kelly, I'm getting a little more optimistic. We've seen a lot of glimmers of growth in many different places, green shoots. Maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I think we reopen in May and June. I think the next employment figures are going to be uh, very, very good as the businesses reopen and rehire. And people have cash. So let's hope uh, that this thing bottomed way in uh, April and we're headed towards a terrific recovery in the second half of the year. You know, it's interesting that the market seems to be ignoring the, the prospect of any more shutdowns related to coronavirus. So we know in places like Texas and Arizona, the count is up. You know, we talked to a head of a Texas hospital system yesterday, and frankly, he couldn't even give us a clear answer as to why it was up. But their ICU bed usage and all of those things are headed in absolutely the wrong direction. So this time around, no one seems concerned that we're going to do another shutdown. Um, they've probably figured out there's more tactical ways to respond to this. But I guess my question, Larry, is, again, I'm putting myself in the shoes of a small business. Even someone like Tillman Fertitta, who has larger restaurants, is saying his business is still down 60 percent year over year. You know, anytime there's a little outbreak, people get more wary about going back to crowded places. So it would seem to me, I mean, Tillman even said if there was money left over, maybe he'd want to tap it. But I hear from smaller businesses who say, Larry, that they're fine for now, but they're really concerned about this cliff that might be coming for PPP because, you know, demand, it's, it's rebounding, but it's definitely not all the way back. Well, don't, don't forget the legislation President Trump signed last Friday extends the PPP program, yeah. uh, I believe, out to 24 weeks from eight or nine weeks. And it also... Uh, provides more flexibility in terms of spending the loan money. Uh, you can now spend 60% on, uh, on payroll and 40% on expenses. So the payroll numbers come down. That will help. Look, I want to go back to the numbers point. Um, I, I think what you'll see is in the aggregate nationwide, uh, new cases have pretty much flattened out many parts of the country coming down. I mean, the growth rates over one day and seven day are about zero. And the same is true for the mortality. Uh, fatality rates are down close to zero, one, between zero and one percent. Now, certain areas, perhaps, I grant you, uh, it's a good point. On the other hand, our health experts have said to me repeatedly, we have much more experience in dealing with hot spots. We have much better equipment, PPE, testing, and so forth, ventilators, and we will be able to fight some fires without uh, closing down the economy. president said himself, we're not going to close down the economy again. So, you know, you can look at the glass half full or half empty. Right now, I think it's more than half full. And I think, you know, you mentioned the stock market. You and I have talked about the stock market. Uh, Said it might be a buying opportunity for long-run investors, Kelly. Not a bad call. And frankly, 
I think the market is uh, seeing the same numbers. The market knows all the same numbers. And um, so far, so good. Look, I'm hoping, I'm praying. Uh, we still have a lot of hardship, and we have a lot of heartbreak in many areas. The numbers are still, you know, way too high on the unemployment and so forth. But it looks like we've hit a turning point. Yeah, one more on that, Larry. Um, it is interesting now to see all of these new retail traders, the Robinhood traders, they're sometimes called. Um, there's a lot of interest in some wacky parts of the market. And you have people who've been trading for a couple of months saying, you know, Warren Buffett's an idiot. And I know, you know, I, making money is, is a piece of cake. I mean, do you see any signs of froth out there? Are you worried about that? I'm sorry, run that by the Warren Buffett is an idiot? I don't believe that. <laughs> no, I don't think many do. Um, my point is, do you think there's any signs of froth in the market? Well, I just, you know, short term, I, I don't know. You're much closer to it than I am. I, I just want to make the point that this pandemic contraction, uh, which did in the early stages do great damage to the stock market, but this is different than historical cycles. I mean, this is more in the nature of a hurricane or a bad snowstorm. Now, I don't want to compare viruses to snowstorms, but the point is this. It was a natural disaster. And that natural disaster stopped, in this case, for three months. It stopped the economy dead in its tracks. And, of course, it stopped the stock market. And, of course, it stopped uh, uh, falling unemployment. I mean, we had a terrific economy last winter as recently as uh, January and, and, and February, three and a half, three point one percent, according to the Atlanta Fed. So I'm just saying froth. I, I have no idea. Overbought, oversold. I have no idea. But I think what's happening is the stock market is presaging an upturn in the economy and that we have turned this corner. Uh, you got green shoots, Kelly, right? I mean, um, more than new, yeah. new, new business applications, business opening, tremendous housing demand, Apple Mobility Index showing people are traveling again. Automobiles are absolutely going to explode. Uh, if we keep some uh, restrictions on liability insurance, you're going to get restaurants opening everywhere. Folks are going to return to work. I think they're all anxious to do so. I still reference the Congressional Budget Office roughly 20% plus in the third quarter. I think you're going to get another 20% in the fourth quarter. And CBO has a big two, uh, 2021 at 4%. Yeah. We are turning a corner. We are transitioning. And I think having rebuilt this economy once, I believe under the president's leadership, we can rebuild it a second time. The hurricane and the snowstorm and hopefully, prayerfully, the virus is passing and we get back to the incentives that gave us such a terrific economy. Yeah, Larry, one of the clearly worst parts of what's happened over the last couple of months, and this has taken a much worse toll on the African-American community, the unemployment rates there even rose in the latest month while the national unemployment rate uh, fell, or maybe it was revised higher. But in any case, the black unemployment rate we're talking about is almost 17 percent right now. You know, the median weekly earnings are still lagged by about $200 on average. So you know, this has been just a humongous hit. Um, what, I mean, do you just say, look, the message is the economy will recover, this will take care of itself, or does more need to be done? Is there any discussion about more targeted help or relief for this community? Well, look, um, let me just say the, the, the African-American unemployment rate in May was up one-tenth of one percent. Now, it so happens that employment 
employment went up, if I'm not mistaken, about 300,000. So it was a good month. And furthermore, uh, for that demographic, for that uh, cohort, the employment population ratio went up over one percentage point. So I think African Americans are coming back into the labor force and looking for work because they're more confident. All right. I don't want to belittle. It's a bad unemployment rate. I get that. But I think the employment turnaround uh, blows well. You know, you go back, take a look at the Wall Street Journal story today. Tremendous article on just how good it was uh, for African Americans, uh, for Asian Americans, for Hispanic Americans, uh, for that matter, for women, uh, for people without college degrees. We had an employment boom. We had a blue-collar boom. We had a minority boom in job creation. The February jobs report before the pandemic came crashing down, African-American unemployment was 5.8. That is nearly the record low, which was 5.4, and that was set in August 29. Okay, go down the list. Hispanics, 4.4. Uh, Asians, 2.5. Women, 3.1. All of those were near or at record lows. That's how phenomenal. The, the tax cuts and deregulation program, frankly, benefited the middle and lower income wage earners. That's why I called it the blue collar boom. Yeah. So the deal is, OK, we have set up we have set up uh, about a thousand uh, opportunity zones all right, to take advantage of investment tax breaks and renovate where there were disadvantaged areas and depressed areas. Those uh, zones, by the way, included education reform and health care reform. We have donated enormous amounts of money to the historic black colleges and universities. We have had criminal justice reform, which was long overdue. And I think the president is working now uh, on various reforms and police reforms to deal with the latest uh, issues. Of course, we must have the law and order. It's the only way it grows with law and order. I saw that in New York City under Rudy Giuliani many years ago. So my point, Kelly, is the African-American community can rebound. They had historically low unemployment. They were on a boom. That's what that Wall Street Journal story said today. Let's keep some faith on this. The same policies to open up opportunities, yeah. prosperity we, opportunities, that will bring everybody back to the workforce. And, and that may be the case, but it's going to take years. I mean, even in this case, it took a long time to get down to those levels. So, as you know, the, the saddest part about this is once you hit an unemployment rate this high, it just doesn't come down as nearly as fast as it rose. So it could be 2021, 2022, 2023. I don't know. You know, right. I, I mean, there happens to be a reelection campaign, you know, in a couple of months where not I don't everybody. know if voters, you know, give credit for what was the, what the not, situation not, was. In not fact. everybody, not everybody buys those 20s, Kelly. I'll just put that in there. I know forecasts are widely dispersed. Um, I know that the president of the St. Louis Fed, Jim Bullard, believe employment, unemployment will be down uh, into single digits. Uh, I happen to think that is possible. Uh, I'm looking at the rate of increase. I think you're going to see just in the next few months, all right, employment, both household employment and payroll employment, which in the aggregate rose three million or more. Uh, I think those employment numbers, as the country reopens, as businesses reopen in June and July, these are transition months, you're going to see big 
gains in jobs. Last the next report and the board after that. And by the way, the trend, I don't want to talk politics. I'm just saying the economic trend is going to matter a lot. People understand that we had this pandemic. They understand it's like a passing hurricane and things will get better or go back to normal at some point. I'm not smart enough to know precisely when. But if you're moving in the right direction, there's no reason why America can't have a terrific comeback here. Last quick question, Larry, to go back to, to where we've started here, which is what phase four could look like. We were saying whether or not any PPP extensions under discussion doesn't sound like it is at the moment. What would be in that bill? What's the most important priority for you? Well, look, there are a number of things. That, it's not for me. It's for the president. There are a number of things he's talked about time and time again. Uh, first of all, to create return to work incentives. He's in favor of the payroll uh, tax holiday for the workforce this time. Uh, we're also looking at amending the unemployment uh, story, the $600 plus up. We will have, I believe, some kind of assistance or credit for a return to work scenario. Uh, he's talked about infrastructure. He's talked about rebuilding the restaurants and small businesses with tax deductions. He's talked about helping tourism with tax deductions. He's looked at the capital gains tax. He's looked at, by the way, onshoring, uh, where he wants to provide some tax incentives and some uh, other assistance so firms can come back home to America. You know, the fashionable idea of long and complicated supply chains, I think, has uh, really changed during this pandemic uh, because of China's unreliability. We're going to see quite a lot of that. So there are a number of issues that he has talked about. Uh, I think the negotiations will probably formalize in earnest after the July 4th holiday. All right. Larry, thanks so much. A lot of information in there. We appreciate it as always. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate Larry Kudlow it. is the chair of the National Economic Council. Coming up, Tesla is taking over. The stock is soaring past $1,000 for the first time today. We're going to dig into just what that stock price is telling us. It's at 1013 right now, up nearly 8%. Plus, Amazon wants to be your everything to everyone, and now that includes being your lender. We'll have those full details ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. What a day for Tesla. The stock hitting another all-time high, crossing the $1,000 mark for the first time. It's now up around 380% from its 52-week low back in last June of 2019. It's nearly quintupled since then. It's gotten so big that it dwarfs the market cap of its largest competitors. Tesla, which delivered just over 367,000 cars last year, has a market cap of $187 billion. General Motors, which sold more than 2.8 million cars last year, has a market cap of just $41 billion. The stock selling off today. And Ford, selling 2.4 million cars last year, has a market cap of just $27 billion. It's also lower today. Now, to add insult to injury for these legacy automakers, Nikola, which is yet to deliver a single car, is nipping on the heels of both of those companies with a market cap now of $24 billion. And now to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Texas reporting a third straight day of record coronavirus hospitalizations. It was one of the first states to relax restrictions. For more on the resurgence, you can go to CNBC.com. President Trump will address policing reforms while visiting Dallas tomorrow. NBC News reports the president will likely announce new measures that can be implemented by executive order, with a broader legislative proposal coming in the next few days. 
and the Justice Department's move to dismiss charges against Michael Flynn should be denied, in part because it is a, quote, gross abuse of prosecutorial power and highly irregular conduct to benefit a political ally of the president, end quote. That is the recommendation of a retired judge brought in by the trial judge to help him decide whether to accept the government's motion, despite the former national security advisor's earlier admissions that he lied to the FBI. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll see you in an hour. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera there. Coming up, if you sell on its site, Amazon wants to be your lender, but it'll cost you a pretty penny. We have details on Amazon's new partnership with a major Wall Street bank. Plus, is the Fed's market support too limited? Is there more they could be doing? A former Fed official says yes, a lot more. He'll join us. Stay right here. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's the latest tie-up between big tech and Wall Street. CNBC.com has learned exclusively that Amazon is partnering with Goldman Sachs to introduce a new line of credit for its U.S.-based merchants. For more, I'm joined by the reporter behind this story. Hugh Sun is the banking reporter at CNBC.com. Hugh, it's good to see you. And, and who wins most from this? Who wins most from this? You know, so it is uh, a bit of a coup for Goldman Sachs. You know, as you know, they had stated that they wanted to build out their par- partner ecosystem. You know, you've heard of software as a service. Well, you know, a couple of months ago, they coined a phrase that's new to me. It's, they call it banking as a service. They want to be the embedded sort of pipes behind a lot of other, you know, big, big popular brands. Obviously, you know, there's some, some mar- compelling marketing uh, economics behind that and why you'd want to do that. So obviously with the Apple card, you know, they've launched that, you know, last year. That was a huge success. Uh, earlier this year, we reported that JetBlue and, and uh, Marcus, the Goldman brand, is, is going to do installment loans. And so I think, you know, uh, one, yes, obviously Goldman's a winner. And two, you know, for sellers on Amazon who have, have cash punches during times when they need to you know, buy a lot of inventory and there's sort of a, a lag between the time that they have to pay for stuff and the time they get paid from Amazon, you know, this should be a win. And I'm looking here at the terms. Uh, these are revolving credit lines. And this is also with the Marcus brand, like you said. Uh, fixed annual interest rate of about 7 to 21 percent, drawn and repaid like a regular credit card. What's so interesting, Hugh, about this is that, you know, we don't we do now. But even five, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought Amazon, you know, marketplace sellers are going to be Goldman's customers. But this is the transition and transformation that Goldman wants, isn't it? It's what they want. I mean, you know, it's it's not easy to break into uh, the world of consumer finance. This is something that's completely mature in this country. And so you only have these opportunities when there's these seismic changes. Obviously, you know, fintech is going to be, you know, the rise of fintech is going to be an opportunity for them uh, as people transition to, you know, more digital existence. This is one case. I mean, it's certainly something super surprising. and It's something that didn't have to happen. So Amazon has had this small business lending program since 2011. They want they use it to fuel uh, their seller growth. And, you know, they use themselves for, for the entirety of this business. And now for the first time, they're allowing an outsider to come in and actually get, you know, with permission, very careful to say this, with permission, get access to some of their seller data so that Goldman Sachs can, can decide whether or not to lend to these people. Why do you think they went with Goldman exclusively instead of the one of the uh, possibility, possible outcomes, which was to make it uh, a marketplace where there could be a number of different lenders for uh, marketplace sellers to pick from? Yeah, right. Part of the story it's on CNBC.com is that they were considering a marketplace, online marketplace model where Goldman Sachs would be one of several 
competing for, you know, for to offer small businesses money. So, and that obviously didn't happen. This is better for Goldman Sachs. I mean, I, I, I think it shows that they basically, they have a relationship. So Goldman took, uh, you know, Goldman Banker, um, you know, took them, uh, well, advised them on the Whole Foods uh, takeover in 2017. That was a huge transformational deal. And so they actually have a long relationship. And I think, you know, sometime in 2018, some Goldman Banker, you know, hatched this idea of like, why not? Why, why don't we sell on Amazon? And here they are uh, consummating that deal. Hugh, thanks very much. A great scoop. And thanks for joining me today. Hugh Sun with that tie-up between Amazon and Goldman. Meantime, shares of Starbucks are down about 5% today after disclosing a $3 billion revenue loss in the latest quarter due to the pandemic. The company also announcing a big shift in store strategy. We bring in Kate Rogers for more on that. Kate. Hi, Kelly. That's right. Well, in addition to that projected loss of $3 billion in revenues in Q3, the company also, it says, it expects to swing to a loss for the quarter with EPS of between 55 and 75 cents. Now, some other business updates here from Starbucks this morning. In the U.S., 91% of stores were open at the end of May. Comp store sales have improved from being down 63% in April to down 43% in May. The final week of May, sales uh, fell 32%. Now, this is the sixth consecutive week of improvement. In the last week, 90% of orders at Starbucks were mobile or drive through at its company-owned stores in the U.S. In Q3, the company now expects comps to decline between 40 and 45%. Moving on to China, its second home market, 99% of stores are open and comps fell 21% in May, down 14% in the final week of the month. 22% of orders were in mobile that last week as well. In Q3, Kelly comps are expected to be down between 20 and 25%. The company also announcing some store changes. It'll open 300 new stores in fiscal 2020. That's down from the original projection of 600. This includes repositioning stores and blending some store formats, and it'll include the closure of up to 400 locations in the next 18 months. That'll be in conjunction with the opening of a greater number of new and repositioned stores. The vision really for each large, large city rather in the U.S. is to have a mix of traditional cafes and these walk up and pick up store formats. There's one right by the New York Stock Exchange. They're going to be accelerating the reopening and opening of locations like that. This was supposed to happen over the next three plus years. They're condensing it now to just 18 months, they say, because of COVID-19. That's kind of accelerated some of the changes they had already planned because, Kelly, customer preferences are really just shifting now as we all continue yeah. to see. Back over to you. I'm curious, Kate, does this mean they are going to de-emphasize Starbucks as the what do they call it the third locate you know the third the third place the third place right no no I don't think so I think this is catering to changing consumer preferences in the 8k they do mention the third place I think it's very much still a part of the Starbucks brand and is really important uh, I think they've seen the shift in how customers want to interact with the brand now a lot more emphasis on to go before COVID 80 percent of their business in the U.S. was to go. You can imagine that's only going to pick up moving ahead in the future. And so I think that that speaks to, you know, those preferences. But again, the third place certainly here to stay and a core part of the brand. All right. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers with the run through there. Again, Starbucks shares lower after all of that news. We are going to get the Fed interest rate decision in 15 minutes. And with all the Fed's doing to prop up the economy, how many moves does it have left? We will discuss that next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Since March, the Fed has unleashed a historic amount of stimulus for the markets and the economy to weather the COVID crisis. As a result, its balance sheet is over $7 trillion. The scale is staggering, but as the U.S. reopens, what more can and should the Fed do to support the recovery? Turns out they still have a few moves left. Joining me now are David Wessel, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Bill Lee, chief economist of the Milken Institute. Great to see you both. David, I'll start with you because there are a couple of interesting things in here, um, including capping bond yields, which I prefer to the term yield curve control. But I know, you know, maybe they're not one and the same. In any case, the second part here is more money from the CARES Act to make even riskier loans, including to nonprofits. Right. So um, as you point out, the Fed could cap long term rates, yield curve control. That's something that uh, isn't an issue now, but it will be as the economy begins to pick up steam if it is. Um, the Treasury has not used all the money that the Congress gave it to give to the Fed to make more loans. So the Fed could make its loan programs more generous. It said the other day, as it widened the eligibility for the Main Street Lending Facility, that it's working on a program to lend money to nonprofits as well. So one thing the Fed could do is basically lend more money on more generous terms to more people, if the, the Treasury is willing to stand behind it. Sure, absolutely. Bill, how does that sit with you? I think that sounds great. In fact, the key thing about Fed monetary policy this cycle is that it's liquidity assurance and market functioning assurance. And it's not so much a matter of rates of the, the rate capping and negative interest rate story in some sense is a misnomer. We have to make sure that businesses survive the recession, and that means giving them liquidity. And David's right about the lending facility, but I think we could do more because the lending so far biases the capital structure and incentivizes investor uh, the, the managers to do the same old things. And what we're missing would be innovative changes, which we need now when we restructure the economy. Hmm. And that's something that equity financing gets you. Well, so, Bill, let's stay on that point for a moment. Your concern here is that the Fed is going to undermine productivity in the long run. What do you mean by that? Because one of the things about uh, incentives for managers is that if the one last the last thing the lender wants to hear is I'm going to be doing something new with your money and make be innovative and try something new right. they want their money back whereas an equity investor uh, all he wants to do is make a lot of money so he's going to say train better people get whatever innovations you need in place and let's make a lot of money and come back strong and that's the kind of incentives we need right now because the economy itself has to be restructured with all the stay at home and we see the inefficiencies that the old technologies are giving us what well, we need are new technologies and that's what you get with equity investment one more on this point to make sure i understand it what would that look like bill coming from the fed yeah the key is the fed has focused on credit markets and we talk about uh, uh, low buying loans and, and giving more more easy loans what the Fed should start to do would be buy equities the way uh, the, uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority did during the crisis, buy a big ETF and support the equity market, incentive, and, and in the micro uh, sphere, allow more IPOs to come on the market and perhaps buy packages of IPOs in different sectors to encourage a newer innovative investment. Oh, it, I understand the, the point that you're making, but David, it's interesting because, first of all, right now we have markets basically back to all-time highs in this talk already. I mean, and by the way, it's amazing what the retail investor, you know, investors writ large, have done in order to get us here without the Fed doing, you know, that kind of approach. What do you think about the possibility of them, you know, in getting more involved in equity markets in the future? Well, it is true that other central banks around the world, the Japanese, for instance, uh, do buy equities. The Fed's position has always been, we don't have the legal authority to do that. As Jay Powell has said over and over again, we lend, we don't spend. 
And I think there is a risk that we are putting too much burden on the Fed. I don't think the Federal Reserve is very well equipped to be a venture capitalist. Uh, there's a question about whether government can be a good venture capitalist in any guise. But I, I don't th I think it's asking the Fed too much. And I think that's one of the problems we're facing now is that uh, the Congress is sort of hoping the Fed can get them out of this thing and they won't have to appropriate a lot more money. And most of the economists I respect say that's not going to work. And so now it's incumbent on Jay Powell and his colleagues on the Fed to forcefully argue to Congress and the president that we need to put more fiscal support into this economy if we're going to have a decent recovery once the virus proceeds. Last question, Bill. One of the question I've been thinking about as well is why couldn't the whole Fed Main Street program simply have been a congressional program? Why did you know why does this have to be? And again, the money comes from both sides. But why aren't we thinking of it as more of a congressional activity? Well, actually, it is. In fact, the key to monetary policy is to ensure fiscal policy efficacy. We need to redirect the flow of money away from debt financing to equity financing. I'm not saying the Fed should be a venture capitalist. In fact, I just want them to redirect the money flows away from debt, which we already have way too much of, toward equity financing. And it's really the piping that, that, that and the legal changes that are needed to enable the Fed to do that are, are, are just what's on the necessary uh, policy agenda. But you can take the point that, that you know, there might be no appetite by the broader public for that. Well, there is. We see how much private equity, the money there is. Money is is is, is waiting uh, by by the by the sides, looking for opportunities. Debt opportunities are way over overloaded, and what we are missing are these new venture capital kind of uh, opportunities, which the Fed could feed and broaden into a different uh, set of of instruments and different sets of possibilities. Fascinating. Well, you guys always get me thinking in many directions. I was not uh, prior to this discussion. Thank you so much again for joining us in the lead up to this You're decision. Welcome. David Wessel and Bill Lee talking about some of the Fed's next options. We're about five minutes away from the decision, and I'll join Tyler Matheson for that, as well as for Fed Chair Jay Powell's news conference. It happens around 2.30 Eastern time, all on Power Lunch right after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.